Well, please join me in 1 Peter chapter 5. We continue our walk through this rich, rich part of God's word. And it's an interesting passage. It's going to talk about the relationship between a pastor or pastors and the church. Comes at an interesting time because it was last Sunday where you honored me so amazingly with the 15 year anniversary of our ministry together. And if you weren't here last Sunday night was just amazing. I was blown away by what our personnel committee and a kitchen committee and so many others did to, to honor us. And so right across the way there in our fellowship hall that we call MP1, they transformed that place. It looked like a wedding reception in there. If you weren't there, I mean, tables and centerpieces and just people, lots of people, lots of food. It was, it was quite quite amazing. And, um, and then just so many words of encouragement, you coming by and speaking words of encouragement, so many letters of encouragement. Joy and I that night come back and just reading all these letters. And so I want to say this, first of all, don't worry. We won't expect you to ever do that again. I don't want you to think, uh, Jim, now we've set the bar, the 16th anniversary, he's going to really be expecting something big. Not at all, not even at 20, 25, 30, whatever the Lord has in store. Not that, because really it was just amazing. And as I told the group there Sunday night last week, that I felt like I had attended my own funeral. You know, it's a unique experience to hear all those eulogies. So I'm good. I'm set for life <laughs> with that. I do want to thank you, though, because you didn't wait to the 15-year mark to start encouraging us. You've been incredibly encouraging and loving every Sunday along the way. And it remains a profound honor to be the pastor of this church. And as I've been expressing thanksgiving to the Lord, really not just last week, but just through the years, I, I have wished and I've longed that every pastor would have this type of pri privilege to serve in a loving church family like this in a context like this. And I know my brothers around the world don't all have a situation like this. So I, I am so, so grateful. So, so with this timing is interesting, then the very next text we come to is a passage that deals with the pastor relationship with a church. And we're gonna look at the role of elders or pastors. We're gonna look at the motivations for these elders. And, and I know the Lord can do many different things with with this text as he applies it to you. But two things come to my mind. First of all, it's another opportunity for us to hold ourselves up as a church to the scriptures to ensure that we're, we're carrying out this like God would have us to. So it's another chance to do that. But it's also a chance for, and I'm praying that God would call out some more people into ministry. So I know you may not have come today with that on your agenda, but, but as a prayer team on Wednesday nights, we pray this regularly that God would call out another wave of missionaries out of our church. And they would call out more men into pastoral ministry out of the church. So we'll just see what the Holy Spirit has in mind today. But again, we are open to however he moves as he applies his word to hearts. So with that, let's dive in. First Peter 5, verses 1 through 5. So I exhort the elders among you as a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ, as well as a partaker in the glory that is going to be revealed, shepherd the flock of God, that is among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly, as God would have you, not for shameful gain, but eagerly, not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. Likewise, you who are younger, be subject to the elders. Clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility toward one another, for God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. 
So we've seen Peter, as the Spirit has guided him, talk a lot to us about suffering, hasn't he? And then we come to this teaching on church leadership and we wonder how do these two things link together? And it appears like chapter four, verse 17 is that link. Remember in the context of suffering and how some of the suffering is God testing us, proving our faith. There's also discipline going on. Remember we came to that stunning verse where it says judgment begins at the household of God. The judgment's coming toward unbelievers, but before the unbelievers, God will discipline disobedience in his church. And and that's not an idea that's meant to be scary to us or somehow that God's impatient and not compassionate toward us. He is abundantly merciful and compassionate with us and will be until he comes again. But certainly we must understand that willful disobedience to our Savior is not okay. Not even among church leaders. We would say this, especially not among church leaders. So we've all heard about terrible hypocritical church leaders through the years who've done terrible harm to churches. We all know stories of pastors who have wrecked their churches due to scandals of various kinds. We know of pastors who have departed from the faith, leading whole congregations into heretical error. But we also know that there are thousands of pastors across the land that don't know Jesus at all. They occupy pastoral positions, but they don't know the gospel. They don't preach the gospel. They preach about being nice neighbors, and this is very social what these do. Now, I know that for lots of reasons, but one is from lots of personal experience with that. And one of the places I saw it first was after my freshman year of college, the Baptist State Convention of North Carolina had a program called Youth Corps. And if you were feeling God's call to ministry, they would match you with one church across the state of North Carolina that was looking for a summer youth worker. So it was a great program. And so they matched me to a a church in Northeast North Carolina, about 45 minutes from where I grew up. And so I got there for my first gathering with the students there at that church that I won't name (laughs) But I gathered there, and of course, in that first gathering with the students in the youth house they had, I shared the gospel with them. The gospel that you and I hear all the time around here, the simple, beautiful gospel that there's salvation through Jesus Christ and none other, that you need to have Jesus in order to be saved and go to heaven. So I share that gospel with my students, and one of the girls in the group said, we've never heard that before. I mean, excuse me, you, you haven't heard what before? This is a Baptist church in North Carolina. She's, we've never heard that before that people need Jesus in order to go to heaven. And, uh, and then she elaborates. She said, you mean to tell me if my mother doesn't ask Jesus to be her savior, that she's going to go to hell? I said, I'm not saying that the Bible is saying that. And she said, I think you're wrong. So the next week we gather and she comes back and says, my mom says you're wrong about that. So, so how, how could this happen? Now, I did spot a Gideon Bible in the youth house. I figured, I think the Gideons had to bring a Bible in here because there's no, no Bible being taught here. Well, I started attending, of course, for these 10 weeks, I started attending the Sunday morning worship services, of course. And then I saw the problem. The old dignified pastor never preached the gospel. He would give these very, these very dignified, calm, reverential lectures on being kind to your neighbor and being good and wonderful reverential tones like that. 
And never the cross, never the need to repent and believe in Jesus. And so no wonder. I'm happy to say this, though. By the end of the summer, two girls, Sally and Faith, gave their lives to Jesus Christ. Having heard the gospel from me all summer, but then at a youth camp, hearing somebody else preach this gospel that they had not heard their entire lives. Just, just illustrating here the tragedy when a church leader doesn't lead like Jesus or lead toward Jesus, it is a problem. And so it makes sense if judgment begins at the household of God, then that judgment understandably would begin with the pastors. So here we're in this passage where really I'm preaching to pastors today. So it's one of those awkward moments where I'm going to be preaching to myself with you in attendance and our four other pastors in the congregation. But I'm trusting that there's application for all of us in this as, as well. So here Peter he writes here, he's, he's writing to those in the office of elder. Did you notice it? Verse one. So I exhort the elders among you. That word elder, like in English, carries the idea of old or older, oftentimes referring to age. But in the New Testament, that word is used frequently for the office or role in the church that we might know of as being elders or pastors. And certainly the idea is it is a person who has maturity, certainly maturing in the faith. And uh, so this, this is talking about a role in the church. And this term elder is actually becoming more and more used in Baptist circles. Maybe if you're older, you remember, yeah, I remember the Presbyterians talk a lot about elders, but, but really most of the church plants that I'm aware of, even in our network of churches, most of them are, are setting themselves up with elders, a plurality of elders seeing that wisdom and that pattern in the New Testament. So that, that term in the Bible, elder, is synonymous with the other terms we see about church leadership. We see the word overseer, and we see that word pastor. These are synonymous terms, elder, overseer, pastor. They're used interchangeably in the New Testament. And as you know here at Staples Mill, we've just retained that very familiar title of pastor, also biblical. We see that one in Ephesians chapter 4. That word pastor literally is the word shepherd. So that is, that is the role. You're caring for a flock. So notice here, Peter describes himself. He's writing to elders, but he calls himself a fellow elder. Did you notice it? He also says of himself that he's a witness of the sufferings of Christ. So that's good for us to remember. All this teaching on suffering that Peter has given us, he's one who actually saw as an eyewitness the sufferings of Christ. In fact, he failed spectacularly when the sufferings began. If you remember, there he he fled, he denied Christ, but he had an up-close view of that. Of course, you remember Jesus had prophesied that he would also suffer and die as a martyr before he died. So, so Peter says, I'm a witness of the sufferings of Christ, and I'm a partaker in the glory that's going to be revealed along with all of us. So, so Peter's saying, I saw Christ suffer, I am suffering along with you, and yet with you I'll also share in the glories that are to come. So in light of this rising persecution and in light of the judgment beginning at the household of God, Peter now gives some charges to these elders, to these pastors. The first charge to them is this, simply do your job. To these elders, do your job. Notice at verse 2, shepherd the flock of God that is among you. That's what a pastor does. So do it. Shepherd. Shepherd the people entrusted to you. And we know what shepherds do. We think about literal shepherds with a literal flock of sheep. We see that them providing for, they're guiding, they're helping, they're taking care of a flock. 
He's telling these pastors, do that job of shepherding, tend to the flock, take care of the flock. But I want you to notice these words are so profound here about the flock. He says, shepherd, catch these words, the flock of God that is among you. That, that's beyond profound for me. That's heavy responsibility here. So a pastor begins his work understanding that this flock is not his. This flock belongs to God. What a huge responsibility when you're responsible for God's people, the people God loves, the ones for whom Jesus gave his body and blood on a cross. So the pastor has that at the very beginning. This is the flock of God and that Jesus, did you notice verse four? Jesus is the chief shepherd. So the shepherd, the pastor is a shepherd, but there is a chief shepherd, the one who actually owns the flock. And the pastor further knows there's also the sense in which he's also a sheep too. He just has now a different role. Notice there's complete humility called for here, but do notice with me, there is the role of leadership here. These, these elders are told to shepherd, lead people, lead people in God's direction, lead them away from harm. And so pastoring is not just a man with a warm smile and everybody doing whatever they want to do. There's leadership here. Verse two, shepherd the flock of God that is among you. Now notice this, exercising oversight. So biblical leadership in a local church involves just that. It involves leadership. In my first pastorate, right out of seminary, I was 25 years old. And there was one church in all of America that would have me. And, uh, and so we went to this wonderful, wonderful church. I still love them dearly. Great, great people. But uh, imagine this, I'm 25 years old and it's the night of the first deacons meeting that I will ever have gone to. And so I was there in the parsonage and a, a man in his seventies, one of our deacons, he said, I'll pick you up. So he drove by and picked me up. And on the way to the church for my first deacons meeting, he gives me some orientation about what to expect. And he said, brother Jim is what he called me. Brother Jim, uh, around here, the deacons run the church and the pastor preaches. Well, that's an old joke when you're in seminary thinking about how churches are run. And so I laughed out loud at the idea that deacons run the church. Now I looked at him and he wasn't laughing. He must've thought I coughed because he didn't act offended, but, uh, but that was an interesting beginning. He was, he was serious, but listen, that's seriously wrong thinking. That's not a deacon function. You'll never find that in the scriptures. Deacons don't run or rule the church. Deacons are wonderful. And we have the best deacons I know in this church. They just have a different function. They're serving the body. They're protecting the unity and health of the body from a different angle. And they're allies and co-laborers with the pattern. They're all on the same team. There's also an unhealthy vision of deacons out in the world. It's almost like, well, the pastor's like the president and the deacons are like Congress and there are these checks and balances and they're almost at odds with each other on purpose. No, when it's working like it ought to be, it's like we are in lockstep. It's all about Jesus. It's about making disciples. It's about sending missionaries. It's about loving and caring for the body together. And, I, and again, I thank God for the privilege of doing that here. So, so pastors... And elders, though, are giving the, given the responsibility of leading and, and exercising oversight. So, so as a pastor, or maybe as you apply this to some leadership you have, we have to have this understanding that our role is to tend and lead and care for those entrusted to us. Notice there's a stewardship here. These people being led, they belong to someone else. These people are precious to God. And you're leading in these roles as an under-shepherd of the chief shepherd. 
So it's for the benefit of the flock to the glory of God. So we must make sure we don't ever turn it on, it on its head, though, and have a model of ministry where it's all for the pastor and the people are all serving the pastor. That would be upside down and backwards. Look again at what Peter says. Verse 2, shepherd the flock of God that's among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly as God would have you. So for those of us in ministry, Peter says, do it willingly. Don't let this be something that you do under compulsion. And so those of us in these types of roles, if we find ourselves, I'm just now doing this merely out of duty, my heart's not in it, we need to get our heart back in it. And the best place to do that is back into the presence of God and rekindle that calling that God gave you perhaps some time ago because we're to do this willingly. Now, to be honest, there are parts of ministry that are compulsory. And if you do what I do, where you preach every Sunday, uh, this is compulsory. In other words, Sunday's coming whether I'm ready or not. And, and a person who preaches the word like this, you're keenly aware, Sunday comes around fast. Have you noticed? Maybe you didn't notice. It's like, it's Thursday already? <laughs> Sunday's coming. And if somebody says, hey, we got Monday off. Not really, not really, because Sunday's still coming. And so there's, there's a certain type of pressure in this type of ministry, but, but it is a privilege. And so always trying to keep that mindset, it's not that I have to do this, I get to do this. I have to do it in the sense that God called me to do it years ago in high school. So yeah, I have to obey him, but I get to do this. What an awesome privilege to study the word and to feed God's people. It's an enormous, enormous privilege. So, so in ministry, you are to willing, willingly embrace the calling and the responsibility. And so let me pause here and just ask you to consider, is God calling you to some role in ministry? You might be a young person here and you're just thinking about, what am I going to do? God, what, what would you have me do? And just to ask, you should be asking him that question regularly. What would you have me do? And some of our young men, it's possible God could call you to be a pastor on a church staff like what I'm doing or what one of our other pastors is doing, that could be for you. You should ask the Lord. Doesn't mean he's going to call you to do it, but ask him. It could be some of our young men and some of our young ladies being called to be international missionaries or to be a part of church planning teams, even around the U.S. And it's just great to ask God that. And, and if he calls you, be willingly following after him. Some people describe that idea of being called, and I would agree with this, that there's a sense of oughtness. Like, how do, how do I know if I'm called? I, I like that term. I just feel like I ought to step into that direction. I sense that God may be leading here. And here's the beauty of being in a local church. You can get counsel on that. So even today, if, if God begins to give you a sense that you're supposed to step in and explore what it would be like to be in some ministry, then you can come to the pastors and, and say, hey, would you pray with me about that? I'm not sure. You might discover that, no, he was testing you. That was a time of testing and um, he wants to use you in some other way. Or he might confirm that over, over time. But please pray about that. But then we see this, the first charge to these pastors, to these elders was to do your job. The second charge is watch your motives, watch your motives. Verse two, again, shepherd the flock of God that's among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly as God would have you now this not for shameful gain, but eagerly. So, so don't be driven by greed. So the motive for ministry cannot be money. 
Now, for most pastors in the world, the idea that they would do it for money really is unthinkable. You think about some of the brothers who are serving as pastors in Iraq, or they're serving in pastor, as pastors in Afghanistan. There's like that, how, how would I possibly be greedy in the context where I am? Maybe in some parts in remote Africa or in some remote parts of India. It's like, there's, there's no way I would enter this for any kind of financial gain. And can I also hasten to say this, for most pastors in America, this really isn't even a temptation. Now, in an established church like ours, where we've been around a while and we can take care of our pastors a little differently, that's something to watch. But, but just, I want you to think about the brothers around the country, many of them bivocational. They're in places where they're doing this, they're, they're working their day job, then they're trying to study and take care of a family. There's an immense strain on them to do it that way. And so just when you think about pastors, do not think they're all out there trying to get, to get rich here. In fact, I, I was thinking about it. Literally, through my years of ministry, I haven't met personally. I know they're out there. I've seen them on TV, some of them, the prosperity preachers. But I've never met a pastor in my circles and networks. I've never met a pastor that I thought that guy's greedy. Never met one. I know they're out there. I'm sure everybody has to check their heart, of course. But I just never met him. Now, it is scriptural for pastors to get their living from the ministry. 1 Corinthians 9, 14, in the same way the Lord commanded that those who proclaim the gospel should get their living by the gospel. So it's right to, to want to provide well for your family, take care of them. Um, keeping pastors poor is not noble, but greed cannot be a part of the equation. When Joy and I were dating and then married, we lived in first in the Charlotte area where we went to college. And back in the 80s in the Charlotte area, there was Heritage USA. How many of you have heard of Heritage USA? No longer there. The ministry, if you can call it that, of Jim and Tammy Faye Baker. And uh, I think Jim Baker's still out there on TV selling stuff. But, um, but yeah, even then, everybody knew this is a bit odd. You know, this, this Christian theme park resort ministry and, and just opulence and the whole mentality was, you know, doesn't God deserve the best? But I think that meant that those leading got all kinds of stuff and you just knew this is off and it all sadly imploded. But we do see on television and other places, these prosperity preachers who do seem to be preaching something that is all about shameful gain. They're getting rich, telling you to, you can get rich by sending them money and it's a racket. And that is what's being called out here. So pastors are not to be motivated by greed. And by the way, that's true of every one of us. That's not a strange teaching for pastors. None of us are to be driven by greed. Remember in the New Testament, we're told that, that idolatry and greed are, are put together, that, that, that greed is a type of idolatry. So the, this idea here is you watch your motives, pastors preaching to myself and the rest of us cannot be driven by greed, but also cannot be driven by power. Verse three, not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. So, so don't be driven by the quest for power. So we take our minds back to literal shepherds on a hillside with sheep. And wouldn't it be a bad image if we had a screaming shepherd driving his sheep in anger? Like that's, that's, not, that's not good for the sheep. And certainly in pastoral ministry, that would not be the model that we have in mind. Neither is a pastor to be in ministry for his own ego and pride, using the church for his own benefit. But pastors and elders, how, whatever you call them, are to serve, they're to serve willingly. Peter drops the word in here, eagerly also. But he says this, being examples to the flock. And so 
I've often thought of the, the model here that shepherd and sheep, the idea of player coach communicates to me. That I'm in the game just like you, raising a family just like you, ups and downs of life just like you. And so a, a player, but also this added responsibility of being a coach. And part of it is this teaching ministry that's part of being a pastor. But Peter calls out, it's not just the public teaching, but it's the modeling of it. It's a major part of it. And it's the beauty of it being in a local church where you get to watch those who are in these leadership roles and you get to hear the teaching, but that's just one dimension of it. Then you get to watch the attitudes. You get to watch the motivations over the years. It's, it's important like that. Lynn Anderson wrote a book called They Smell Like Sheep, Spiritual Leadership for the 21st Century. And he points out here that the essence of spiritual leadership is this. He said, sheep following a shepherd because they know and trust him. This kind of trust and allegiance can be gained only one way, by a shepherd touching his sheep, carrying them, handling them, tending them, feeding them to the extent that he smells like them. So we think about literal shepherds and sheep. They don't do this at a distance. They're down there among them so that a shepherd should smell like the sheep that he's with. So a pastor is not to be a distant, domineering CEO. He's to be with the people, involved in their lives, and they walk through life together. So we all know that we could go on YouTube and hear some great sermons. Now be careful, there's also lots of heresy there, but you could, you could find quite easily clicking around better sermons than even this sermon and because and great sermons can be out there. But that's not a substitute for life in a local church because hearing the teaching is just one dimension of it. Notice here that the shepherds are told, be examples to the flock here. But in all that, let's go to this point, it's never, though, about the pastor. The pastor's never to be the focus of the church. All eyes are to be on the chief shepherd. Verse 4, and when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. Now, this is sobering, and this is quite encouraging that here the chief shepherd, he is noticing what's happening in his churches. The, the pastors of churches will have to give an account for how they have cared for the flock of God. And here there's this promise of a reward. If the pastors serve well, then there is this, this unfading crown of glory. Another God, God rewards in some way on top of salvation, like all of our faithfulness to him, he, he rewards that. But don't you love the words unfading crown of glory? This is something that will never diminish Always grateful for this forever and ever, an unfading crown of glory. Un unlike the types of rewards we might get in this life or other things that sometime over time lose their value, there is reward here. But, but soberly understanding, the chief shepherd is evaluating how it's going. We'll talk more about this next time, but there is a charge to the church. Let's just look at it real quickly. Now, verse 5, this is to the church. Likewise, you who are younger, be subject to the elders... Clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility toward one another, for God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. Peter's saying simply, follow the leaders. Not blindly, but willingly. It brings to mind Hebrews 13, 17. Listen to this, Hebrews 13, 17. Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they are keeping watch over your souls. Here it is. As those who will have to give an account let them do this with joy and not with groaning, for that would be of no advantage to you. Do you hear the mutual responsibility here between leaders and others in the church? The, the pastors are to lead and teach and model well. 
That heavy idea of giving an account for this responsibility. And then those in the church are to, to follow well. And then verse 5 again, we'll talk about it more next time. Verse 5, clothe yourselves, all of you, with humility toward one another, for God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. I noticed that in all directions, everything being done, being done out of complete humility. He says, all of you. So there's to be harmony in the church. It would not please the Father if pastors who are shepherds abused the flock, would not please him. Neither would it be pleasing to him if the sheep abused and bit the shepherd, it's all to be marked by humility and love. So, so let me ask you this now. Do you know that shepherd? Do you know the one the scripture calls here the chief shepherd? Peter's talked about him in these terms earlier in 1 Peter 2, 24. He says, he himself, Jesus, he himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds, you have been healed for you were straying like sheep but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. Do you know the one who's described as the shepherd and overseer of your soul? Jesus Christ. Jesus spoke of himself this way in John 10, 14. Jesus said, I am the good shepherd. I know my own and my own know me. Just as the father knows me and I know the father and I lay down my life for the sheep. Do you know Jesus? More than being a member of a church, have you come to know Jesus? Nobody loves you like Jesus who left the perfections of heaven and came to this earth and he lived and he loved and he taught and he gave him his life on a cross. He poured out his blood in payment for your sins. He was raised on the third day. Have you come to know him? And your responsibility is to believe in Jesus Christ, to turn from your sin and put your trust in only Jesus. You do need Jesus. My first youth group, I've never heard that before. Maybe for someone here today, I never, never heard it before. Maybe today's first time I never understood that before. But I pray you'll understand that you need Jesus. You, you will not go to heaven without Jesus. Would you turn from sin right now and ask Jesus, Jesus, save me. Take over my life. I want to follow you. I know you're the only Savior. Would you save me? And then begin to follow him. Let's pray together.